Let's make 2020 the start of something special. The coronavirus. And this is their new hopes. Perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin. The time has now come to do more. You must stay at home. The best is yet to come. Hello and happy new tier and welcome to the last bunker of 2020. I'm Andrew Harrison and what a long and dismal year it's been. This week has the panel prepared for the arduous journeys of the Christmas period, all the way from the kitchen to the couch and back again. We count down the 20 worst moments of the past 12 months, not the really bad ones, just the shameful, foolish, inept or just witless episodes that made 2020 not just an ordeal, but an embarrassment to the human species as well. It's been rotten. But the good news is it's almost over. No wonder we spent the year in a bunker. Before we start, if you missed our live stream with Oh God, What Now? Our sister brother podcast last week, video and audio are now available to our Patreon supporters. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and you can hear Ian Dunst, Aisha Hazarika, Ross Taylor, Nomi Smith, Alex Andreo, and Dorian Linsky in full festive space. It is the only time you will see six people from different families gathered together this Christmas. Right, let's meet this panel who are going to be talking us through the nightmare year that is 2020. Yasmin Sahan is a staff writer for The Atlantic. Originally from San Francisco, she's now traveling in the North London media bubble, which is now in tier nine, where you're not even allowed to look out the window or even think about other people. Hello, Yasmin. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. I'm sorry. I was going to say my blinds are my blinds are shut, so we're all good. <laughs> good to know. I was going to ask you, did you have to scrap all your plans? But I, I, being a, a foresighted person, I'm sure you, you were not expecting to be putting together enormous uh, you know, festive get-togethers and so forth, or even maybe, I don't know, fly to the States, were you? Uh, no, I, it was pretty clear by summer that any plans I had, I mean, plan A has and always was for as long as I've lived here is to just go home for Christmas. Um, mm. so I've become quite an expert at canceling plans. So that was plan A. Plan B was a small dinner with my boyfriend's family. Plan C is to stay within these four walls. Um, That's, so yeah. don't, don't get too attached to that one. Even that might get, get cancelled uh, pretty shortly. You, you, you never know. Um, we've just watched, literally just now, we just watched Boris Johnson's Something and Nothing press conference on Monday evening. Um, his announcement over the weekend that Christmas is over could actually be the worst communication disaster in a year of terrible communications. And this from a guy who was elected to be the great communicator. Do you think his kind of imprimatur as great communicator has, has fundamentally gone now? Has he lost whatever credibility was there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things because I feel like this whole year has just been like a, a communication fiasco. Um, and certainly like with the Christmas announcement, I think was just, you know, the the biggest one yet. And even though, I mean, I think what's so stunning about this is that, you know, I think I, myself included, I there was a poll done by YouGov where I think most people do support the decision that the government has taken. I think they can understand why the decision was taken. But but I think what, what the frustration comes is that they made these promises, like that you'll have five days of gathering with people indoors at all. I mean, that, you know, that this just, a lot of it just feels so unavoidable. So, you know, if I had to give the prime minister any communications advice for, you know, for, or a New Year's resolution, it would be to under-promise and over-deliver. And for goodness sake, do not tweet anything about 2021 being fantastic. <laughs> we can't do it. Also with us, you heard him there, cackling in the background. It's actor-comedian and survivor of the, the great Quibi disaster of 2020, Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty bad, Andrew. Uh, yeah. Pretty bad. Um, because I'm in Britain and conscious. Okay, that's well. You could you could do something about the latter if you try hard. Um, <laughs> so, are you looking forward for, to Christmas with two or three or one? What's it going to be? 
Well, it's um, it's going to be much smaller, uh, of course, than it would have been, and I'm just sort of staying in my flat. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't. Christmas was never like a huge thing for me growing up, um, but even I yesterday found myself just like yeah, sat at the dining table having a bit of a cry about what's going on with the whole thing. And so I can't imagine how much more horrible this has been for people where this is always like the main thing of the year. Uh, so gosh, it's, yeah, if, if I'm, if I'm fucking miserable about it, then, uh, God knows how everyone else is feeling. Completing the panel, dialing in from the countryside where it's tier minus three and everybody's running naked and joyful through the market sounds. It's former diplomat, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How's it going? Well, I'm a bit cold from all the running naked, but otherwise fine. <laughs> so the huge related story over the weekend was the travel and freight brand uh, on the UK from countries in the EU and elsewhere over variant COVID. Um, this comes, as the Brexit talks still aren't concluded, Will do you think that this sneak preview of what a no-deal Brexit is going to feel like, this kind of try before you buy, or rather, unfortunately, we've all bought it already, is it going to affect those talks, do you think? Uh, we've we've just come from watching the uh, press conference on Monday evening, and and Grant Shapps mentioned that they've got a movable barrier on the M20. And I think once the EU see that we've got this movable barrier, they realise <laughs> that we're pretty serious about this. So I think they'll be backing down. Actually, when he said movable barrier, I thought he was going to say it's in the channel or something, <laughs> or we've or we've wrapped it around the Queen or something. It, it, the movable yeah. barrier is a body of water. <laughs> yes, I know. And Rob wasn't very clear about this, was he? Uh, presumably, this also means our negotiating team are, st- are stuck in Brussels now. Well, I guess it does. I was wondering whether you'll have David Frost, you know, it'll be Christmas night and he'll be nodding off to sleep in his hotel room on his own. And then he'll be visited by three ghosts. Brexit <laughs> past, Brexit, and Brexit, the ghosts of Brexit yet to come that will show him a vision of a country with people living off grilled rat and sort of foraging <laughs> for vegetables. At, at which point, Frost will have a, a sort of, you know, an epiphany and realise that he's got to give the EU what they need so we can continue to trade. So I, that, that's what I'm expecting anyway. I think my favourite thing of the weekend was uh, the quickly put together memes of Alastair Sim hanging out of a window in the in the uh, the classic movie version of A Christmas Carol saying, you boy, what tear is it? <laughs> I thought that told us everything we need to know. Anyway, shall we get started on the worst moment of 2020? Listeners, you may notice a preponderance of two countries on our list because very few other nations have come close to Britain and the USA for the total self-owned this year. Let's commence our countdown of the year as we mean to go on. Number 20, January the 2nd, Boris Johnson tweets that this will be a fantastic year for Britain. Ah, here, can you think of a greater hostage to fortune? Is it all his fault? Did Was this the monkey's paw? Was this the thing that jinxed it? <laughs> I mean, the one thing that he's got right is uh, his contribution to the meme community. Mm. Uh, so that's been decent of him anyway. Uh, I think, you know, no no one's saying that the entirety of this is like, he didn't fuck the bat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure to, about that? Well, to our this is Boris Johnson we're talking about. <laughs> yes, well, if, if you see any uh, blonde-haired bat hybrids walking around who uh, don't, don't really have any father anyone's aware of, but their school fees are being paid on time, then we'll know that uh, it did actually originate in that way. Uh, but yes, uh, I, th- I think I think you can blame him for a pretty big chunk of what's happened. Uh, you know, like yeah, he, he he didn't he didn't start it. But the whole the whole point of being in positions like this is that serious shit happens when you're in charge, and you've got to be serious in response to it. Uh, which 
the man is genetically incapable of being. Arthur, uh, Yasmin touched on this a minute ago, the idea that of, of over-promising and uh, under-delivering. Is this his fatal flaw? Just ba- cheery boosterism is what will always sink Boris Johnson. I think the fatal flaw is not giving a fuck, isn't it? It's like <laughs> you can go booster all you want, but but if you don't care when it goes wrong, and he clearly doesn't, uh, and after all, you know, he doesn't give a fuck about anything, including members of his own family, you know, his children, his many, uh, you know, uh, jilted lovers. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, that, that that does seem to have consequences and, and we are living with them. Yes, I mean, there's a bit of a difference from Trump, who started 2020. His New Year's message was threatening Iran after a demonstration outside the US embassy in Baghdad. They'll pay a very big price. This is not a warning. It is a threat. Happy New Year. Is what it's, <laughs> it's kind of unusual way of doing it. Um, you know, are you going to miss his tweets, do you think? Um to miss them, I would have to be following him currently, and I'm not. Um, I think I unfollowed him ages ago, just because, I mean, they always the tweets always, at least the important tweets, always do end up on my timeline one way or another. Um, but but no, I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to miss kind of this bizarre running commentary on things and surprise announcements of potential wars. I mean, I just, I just want Twitter to be like... As a like you know, it's already incredibly annoying, and I don't think that will ever change with or without Trump's tweets. But I just wanted to get it to like a very baseline level of annoying that I can stomach. At number nineteen on January the thirty first, the UK formally leaves the EU amidst very embarrassing scenes in Parliament Square. We had banners saying "Lock up the traitors." What the papers called revelers jumping in front of RTE reporters to shout "Fuck the Pope." at uh, viewers in Ireland, which is lovely, and singing, this is my favourite, Oh, What a Night, leaving Brexit on a Friday night. Leaving Brexit. So the guy was celebrating leaving. I don't know, I think the drink may have been taken. Arthur, was this a golden portent of our independent future, do you think? Is this, you know, what we're looking at next year? Well, I, I, having grown up in the 1980s, I remember there, was, there were revellers who used to go around Europe attending football matches and sort of setting fire to things and beating people up and so on. And and it was something we all felt proud of, and it was you know, <laughs> it was how we defined ourselves as a country. And some people even said it was what had made Britain great with its empire. So I think it is, yeah, it's important of of how Britain has really found its place again in the world. Mm-hmm. I hear it's kind of easy to to, to mock the Brexit superfan, and for and for the likes of us on you know sort of metropolitan wet liberal podcasts like this to go look at the state of them. But do you, do you think it's got worse over the course of this year? Do you think that as the the Brexit thing has dragged on that the louder angrier brexit fan has has got worse well i think that things have got worse because as a country we're having to make ourselves increasingly okay with even more outlandishly shit things uh and so inevitably the sort of thing would would just be in a downward spiral i actually hadn't thought about january the 31st in a very long time given that a couple of things have occurred since uh but uh i i suddenly remembered the fact that on that night uh, I was walking home after going to a friend's birthday party at the pub and a white man in his 50s uh, stopped me in the street for a conversation and was very keen to discuss the fact that certain ethnic groups were worse than others because of their skull shapes. Uh, and he was he was very happy that evening of what had happened with our exit from the European Union. Uh, and that sort of hammered home to me that perhaps perhaps not everyone on the other team was was excellent. I did suggest to him a very easy way that we could learn who had the stronger skull, but he wasn't keen on that. 
At number 18, it's Donald Trump's bizarre car crash interview with the Australian journalist Jonathan Swan for Axios on HBO in August. Uh, we saw Trump uh, floundering and flanneling, uh, waving meaningless charts around, claiming civil rights hero John Lewis would only be remembered for not attending the Trump inauguration and defending uh, Vladimir Putin's bounty on US servicemen. So it was a clean sweep of amazing. Yasmin, this was seen as not necessarily the full turning point, but certainly a significant moment in the in the Trump downward spiral. Did it, do you think it moved a needle electorally? Gosh, I'm even trying to remember that far back. I mean, even for him, it was a pretty surreal performance. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not actually sure whether it moved the needle, though, because you know, in in reality, it kind of confirmed a lot of what we had already known about the president at that dis, at you know at this point. I mean, his distaste for science, in fact, his self obsession. I mean, the fact you know the fact that the first thing that came to his mind when asked about John Lewis was the fact that he didn't attend his inauguration. Think really speaks for itself. Um, but but I, I think, you know, kind of even just looking back at that interview, I think what was obviously a red, fa- a red flag um, was, you know, just th- the fact that this pandemic, and it, I think, when was that interview? Is that August? I mean, th- that it could, it was already pretty bad then. And I think, you know, just clearly judging by his responses about, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, testing the U.S., uh, testing, uh, getting more coronavirus tests was bad because it made the country look bad. I mean, all those things, it just kind of, I remember it striking me as like, this could get a whole lot worse. And looking at the U.S. now, it certainly did. I like the fact that he said he referred to the manuals for the coronavirus vaccine, which we didn't have a vaccine yet, but he was talking about the manuals. Yeah, I'm sure there aren't manuals yet. At number 17, Matt Hancock tries to cry on Good Morning Britain uh, after the first recipient, one of the first recipients of, uh, the, of the vaccine is the, uh, the person with the unimprovable name of William Shakespeare, um, one gentleman of Corona. Uh, here, what did you think of this uh, special moment of real emotion, Matt Hancock trying to wring a tear out of his dried up eyeball? Well, look, I mean, I, I have some sympathy with those who wish to dunk on Matt Hancock because he is an eminently dunkable man, uh, being as he is just some guy magazine's man of the year three years running. Uh, <laughs> but I, I did think that in, in that sort of situation, like, even if you believe that he's exclusively in this for himself and doesn't really care about it, then you would still get emotional that there was a vaccine because you're like, oh, that's good news for me. Right. So I, I don't really understand. And uh, like, I think that having a go at people when they do stuff like this is probably contributes to us having an even worse political class going forward, because I would prefer to think that someone was at least human enough to be moved by this after what is definitely the worst year of his life. That's true. But I mean, I, th- I think the issue people had was they didn't actually believe he really was crying. Because he starts laughing the minute after he's kind of fiddled with his eye. And I think people just thought, he's this guy's faking it. Uh, I mean, how often have these people seen Matt Hancock do real crying? I don't, I don't know. I don't have That's anything true. to compare it to. They do cry weird. We've seen him uh, doing Don't Stop Me Now. That was impressive. <laughs> um, at number 16, the great defend our statues moment of the summer as uh, various Giacomo clad patriots, including the Democratic Football Lads Alliance, tried to defend statues from Black Lives Matter protesters by special measures, including uh, taking time out to urinate on the PC Palmer plaque. Arthur, the statue mania of uh, midsummer was, it was kind of a, 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 a major standout moment with both 
genuinely moving and, and, and important and just bizarre moments. Most people seem to accept that statues of slave owners were a bad idea and that this was a good thing to be addressing. Do you think that, uh, and we saw simultaneously the kind of the idea, the immediate and opposite reaction that, you know, the statues have got to be defended no matter what they are and who they're of, and even if they're somebody you've never heard of. Do you think, what do you think this moment meant? Do you think it was a, a change in how people think about public space and statuary and so forth? I think there's a kind of wider point that in an incredibly shit year, one good thing was loads of people having a much higher awareness of questions of racial justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, obviously, there's always going to be, particularly in this country, a certain core of morons who, you know, would suddenly find their way to a protest in favour of a statue whose, who's, you know, identity they have no idea about. But I think that most people in Britain were kind of woken up to a slightly more critical re-examination of our history and starting to think about whether or not we do need to ask ourselves who these statues are or what money paid to build these vast country estates and all the rest of it. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I mean this is something that's happening in the United States and Britain kind of in, in parallel. The fact that it was absorbed into culture was so quickly, you know, we've kind of become used to this now, haven't we, that whenever an, an argument is advanced or a debate is advanced, it's going to be immediately seized upon by the other side and cast as a culture war thing. Mm. Is it, are we just going to have to get used to that happening with absolutely everything that comes on the agenda? Oh gosh, I hope not. I mean, I think I, I think I, I thought Arthur's point was, was quite good, and you know, I think statues in particular. I mean, they're they're kind of a natural outlet for these kind of things because you know they're meant to be provocative. They're meant to you know make us ask questions of ourselves and of our history and how we remember it. And and as you said, they're you know they're in the public square. Like you know, the, it's it is important. You know what what we choose to prioritize, what we choose to have people look up to. Um, quite literally, in a lot of cases with these statues. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, whether that you know extends to sort of other minute things like is that dress blue or gold i mean i hope not um that's a throwback to i don't even remember what year that's from but um but yeah so i it's it, i think the statue thing was was quite natural but yeah i gosh i i hope it's not extended to everything though <laughs> at number 15 while we're on the subject of culture war the row over whether rural britannia and Land of Hope and Glory would be played at the last night of the proms. This was a classic. It was a single column in BBC Music magazine, uh, which mentioned the idea that perhaps these are not appropriate songs to perform. There wasn't going to be any communal singing anyway, because there couldn't be an audience, because pandemic. And within a a, a few days, you've got Conservative MPs demanding the end of the licence fee, and the Prime Minister getting stuck in, because obviously the Prime Minister hasn't got anything else to do at the moment. And then the final... The final shakedown is that the songs are actually sung anyway in a socialisation way. So the whole thing is a you know just gets flammed up and flames out. I hear did this make you proud to be British? A, a vapid culture war squabble that actually didn't go anywhere. Well, this is a fascinating one to me because I had entirely forgotten that this happened to the extent that I'm not sure I was aware of it happening at the time. And I think that that's delightfully indicative of the way that a lot of these culture wars work, which is basically like if one day you had like too much laundry on or something like that, and you're like, oh, fuck, I missed what everyone was furious about 24 hours ago. I guess I'll never know anything about that. But everyone else has forgotten anyway, so it doesn't fucking matter. 
Yeah, you escaped. You dodged that particular bullet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? What? It's like um, you know, in Game of Thrones where they're all rushing into battle and someone like conks Tyrion on the head with a hammer right before it starts, and he just passes out through that entire one because at the time they couldn't afford to film that battle. I was the Tyrion Lannister of that culture war. At number fourteen. You heard a little bit of it at the top of the show, actually. August the 25th, Kimberly Guilfoyle's bizarre speech <laughs> at the Republican National Convention. Uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Fox News personality, um, who seemed to think that obviously all the conventions had to take place socially distanced with, with the Democrats' case, nobody there. In the Republicans' case, drastically reduced numbers. And she still behaved as if she was addressing a megadrome of 200,000 people. <laughs> yes, mate, what, what happened here? Who is she? What's happening here? Who is she? What does she want? Why was it so crazy? Yeah, it's um so yeah, Kimberly Guilfoyle. I know her uh, predominantly as as the um, the ex of of California Governor Gavin Newsom. So she, like me, is from San Francisco. Uh, but yeah, was on Fox News. Uh, now works on the Trump team. I believe is dating Don Trump Jr. Anyway, yeah, I mean that that whole speech was quite. Um, and if you if anyone hasn't watched it, I would encourage you to because it's really something. But um, it, it for me, it kind of perfectly illustrated the disconnect between the White House and reality. Because as you just said, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and all of these are usually massive ballroom conventions were scaled down to virtually nothing. And she delivered, um, you know, an address that was meant for a massive, you know, ballroom filled with supporters. And, you know, you could kind of tell from the inflection in her voice, from all the hand gestures, um, from that speech alone. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the biggest threat to the country wasn't the coronavirus, but, you know, a creeping socialist agenda. So um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a pretty surreal thing. And a lot of great memes came out of it, as I recall. I got the impression that she thought it was green screen and they were going to put the crowd in later because <laughs> she was really going for it. And it was a treasure trove of uh, of samples, particularly if you're the dead Kennedys. It's a great, you know, you can just absolutely cover your records in, in this. Here are a few of them. We've selected a few favourites. America, it's all on the line. President Trump believes in you. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream. You are qualified, you are powerful, and you have the ability to choose your life and determine your destiny. Continuing our countdown of the worst moments of 2020, actual mass death and human misery, notwithstanding, obviously we took that out, it would be a little bit tasteless, but we reached number 13, the Russia report, specifically the government saying that it had not found any evidence of Russian interference in our democracy because it hadn't looked for any. Arthur, how significant is this? Do, 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 do the security services usually decide to turn a blind eye to foreign interference in British politics? Well, I think it's a good example of British exceptionalism because in lots of countries you have this thing where the security services will investigate people who've done nothing wrong and arrest them, whereas what we do is we have people who've done something wrong and we just ignore them. So, it, you know, we like, we like to do things differently, I guess. Do, do the security services have volition, though, to investigate topics without being specifically instructed by political leadership? Do they need do, do they need a minister to say, looks like something funny is happening over there, MI5, do you want to have a look? Well, it's, it's, it's uh, interesting you should ask that because no, MI5 do not need uh, a mandate. They're self-tasking, meaning that they can, as you might expect, they, it's for them to figure out what's, um, you know, what's causing a threat and, and, and dig into it. And intriguingly enough, they didn't think that any of this was threatening and they didn't dig into it. And so uh, 
all all you can draw from that is I think the rather obvious conclusion that just like any other sort of senior civil servant, uh, these organizations are run by people who are very aware of what politicians have on their agenda and will know how to trim their sails appropriately. Interesting. Yasmin, uh, Donald Trump's relaxed attitude to Russia has, has been a hallmark of his presidency. Is that issue dead and buried now that he's defeated? Or can we expect the Biden administration to reinvestigate Trump's exceedingly relaxed relationship with Russia, his unaccountable refusal to take Vladimir Putin to task on various infringements? Yeah, it, I mean, it's. I, I think there's perhaps a, a temptation among some to just sort of look past him and let him fade into memory. Um, I know that my colleague, um, James Fallows, has a piece in, in the current issue of The Atlantic magazine, which kind of looks into what he thinks the Biden administration should investigate Trump for, like, you know, just any abuses, not not just um, Russia. But I mean, I think, you know, I don't necessarily expect that this would be the first thing that the Biden administration would want to do. I mean, obviously, I think their priority is getting the pandemic under control. And, um, you know, obviously, Biden has, has kind of made it very clear that he's quite keen on bringing the nation back together. Um, So, you know, even if he were to kind of look into that, I think he would have to find a way to sort of strike a balance between holding Trump accountable, but also not trying to give him too much oxygen. Because I don't know about you, but I I couldn't think of anything worse than effectively just having sort of, you know, the same 2020 fight over the next four years. Um, And yeah, I, I think that he'll be, he'll be quite intent not to try to, you know, obviously rile up Trump's base any more than perhaps Trump would want him to. Yeah, the best thing to to think about for next year is just the idea that you won't have to think about Donald Trump anymore. But unfortunately, not just yet, because we've got to stick with him for number 12, where we have the embarrassment of the first presidential debate, aka, will you just shut up, man, the movie? Yes, I mean, this was acclaimed as, you know, widely acclaimed as the worst presidential debate ever, and a national humiliation for the United States. Was it the worst presidential debate ever, do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I haven't, for the ones I've certainly been alive for, yes. Um, I think um, in terms of embarrassment, um, I, as an American abroad, very keenly aware that I was up incredibly early with a lot of folks around the world watching this. Um, it was kind of incredibly embarrassing. Um, just to know that, you know, it wasn't just, you know, it's one thing if we're kind of, you know, fellow Americans sort of keeping, you know, not airing our dirty laundry aware that this is happening, but to have the whole world watch what was like this incredibly incoherent and disorienting, like series of just, you know, like crazy interjections and half thoughts, like only occasionally broken up by bits where you could actually hear what they were saying. It was just, yeah, it was, it was very embarrassing. At number 11 on our countdown to the 20 worst moments of 2020, we have the internal market bill and Brandon Lewis admitting that it breaks international law in a specific and limited way, thereby giving a new phrase to the lexicon, no, I crashed the car only in a specific and limited way. All five living former prime ministers uh, registered an objection to the bill. Ah, here, the the gags about speeding or robbing banks in a specific and limited way kind of wrote themselves. Were you tempted to to have a go? I mean, do you feel that politicians are encroaching on your territory as a comedian here? (laughs) Uh, yes, uh, but thankfully, they're much, much worse at it, uh, which is uh, useful for everyone. I, th- I think this is a fascinating thing because it feels like the history of this country has obviously like a great many things to be proud of in our, our collective history, but also features a lot of doing extremely heinous things with my accent and that somehow making it <laughs> fine. Uh, and uh, th- this feels like c- coming toward the sort of real crunch point with um, 
the end of the withdrawal agreement and everything, uh, and talking about breaking the international law in a specific and limited way, is sort of feels like the end point for how much we can get away with that. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're sort of just in a position now where it's like, oh, that's not going to cut it. Um, and consequently, we're fucked. Mm. Arthur, how big a deal is it that Britain has now informed the world that it's going to break its word when it feels like it? Well, it doesn't seem like a great look at the time when you've decided to try to reinvent yourself and sort of forge new alliances. And, you know, it's notable that uh, Britain has got really stuck on these level playing field bits of the Brexit negotiations, because that's a classic case of something where if you were seen as good good on your word, then you could just make an assurance that you wouldn't uh, deregulate in a way to undermine the EU. But it's extremely obvious that because of our habit of uh, established habit of breaking our word, being willing to break international law, and by the way, being led by a person who's, as as Rory Stewart said, the, the most successful liar in Britain, you know, that does slightly undermine confidence in what we're doing. Yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. Because the question is, the question is, the radical left. Will you shut up, Listen, who is on your list, Joe? That's what check is a substantial. And now we're into the top 10 of the worst moments of 2020. At number 10, the exam fiasco and mutant algorithms. A-level and GCSE pupils are marked down. As a result of this algorithm, Education Minister Gavin Williamson had been warned that it would disadvantage poorer pupils around a month before it was axed, and he still did it. And then Johnson says it mutated only for everyone, including GCSE maths pupils, to point out that algorithms can't actually mutate. They're written by humans. They don't have a life of their own. Arthur, in normal times, a a massive fiasco like this would sink a government, but this one just kind of bumbles on. Are are they getting away with it because of the enormity of the COVID crisis and the fact that the thought of of, of any government, even this government, falling in the middle of a crisis like this is too much to think about? I don't think it's that, but I think it's a related point, which I think is the sort of numbness that a lot of people feel. And I suppose particularly for, you know, sadly, huge parts of the population who have no idea whether their future employment, you know, exists, whether the industries they work in are going to continue, uh, you know, no one can make plans, all that sort of dislocation. I think that has has created in people a sort of inability to think about politics. And after all, outside the weirdos who listen to podcasts like this, uh, you know, most people don't think about politics very much. So I, I think that's what's happening, but but it's hard to understand really how the government's sort of polling has really held up quite quite well given everything that's happened. Yes, I mean it's been impossible to keep count of the number of U turns that took place over the summer. The exam fiasco was was one of them. At one count, it was eighteen by the end of September. Cancelling Christmas certainly takes us to at least twenty. When a government gets a reputation for U turning on everything that it does. Can it ever can it ever lose that reputation? Is there any point in it making announcements if you simply then start the egg timer as to when they're going to reverse it? I mean, yeah, you, one would think that kind of every government announcement henceforth would just have a little asterisk at the end that could be like subject to change or whatever, um, like terms and conditions apply. But um, but yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's very difficult, even in a year such as this, where I think a lot of people could forgive the fact that you know everything is in flux. And that a lot of things are changing. Um, you know, they, they look to the government to have a bit of foresight into 
at least be, be able to sort of anticipate these big things. So yeah, I, th- I think it's very difficult for, for them to come back from that. I, I would be very surprised um, if anyone really looked to anything the government said without, you know, the sort of thought in the back of their mind that, ah, oh, this, you know, will probably change in about five days time. Yeah, we, we saw it this week, didn't we? You know, on, on Wednesday, Johnson is uh, is attacking Keir Starmer, saying he's the guy who wants to cancel Christmas. Two days later, cancels Christmas. If anything, you you probably get that when they say they're not going to do something, you, that's pretty much your signal that actually they're very much going to do that. So it's Alan Partridge saying we've definitely got a second series, but yeah. as a, as government, you know, as a government approach. At number nine, we're getting to the good stuff now. Donald Trump prescribes bleach injections to combat COVID nineteen in April, while uh, Deborah Burke stands by gritting her teeth. He tells a press conference, "I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute." And is there a way we can do something like that by injection inside? or almost a cleaning. Yes, I mean, Trump's entire COVID performance is a kind of a grotesque pantomime. And even when he got it, he turned his recovery into into theatre with that kind of Mussolini unmasking on the balcony. And apparently he wanted to wear a Superman t-shirt and kind of tear his shirt open, but they told him it wasn't a good idea. How damage, damaging was his own scepticism towards the wearing of masks and, and, and the way that it, it made not wearing a mask into a political identity? Yeah, I mean, uh, incredibly damaging to the extent that it very much politicize a very serious reality that we're all in. And I mean, taking masks as as a prime example, I mean, that's the one thing that we could all do right now, both sides of the Atlantic, that would, you know, seriously help us take kind of get this under control. But it's, you know, increasingly, um, certainly at least in the US, become sort of a political signal of of, of where you stand. And um, yes, I think that the whole handling of it has just been incredibly shambolic. At number eight, Jeremy Corbyn contradicts the EHRC report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party within 36 minutes of it being released and gets suspended from the party as a result. Then the NEC readmit him and then Keir Starmer withdraws the whip, producing amusing tweets such as Islington North Labour gain. I hear Corbyn's response to the report was described to me as suicide by cop. Do something so impermissible that you're bound to get suspended. Why is he doing this? Is it is it is it uh, is it a narcissism? Is it a sincere belief that uh, that he can't be wrong on this? Well, Andrew, uh, I I try not to have a great number of public opinions about the Labour Party these days because I enjoy things like having a cup of tea and watching MasterChef, and don't enjoy things like getting shouted at by strangers. Um, so uh, I. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't say that I followed this particularly closely. But uh, it, it's odd to me that he he is sort of the front and the figurehead for this movement, which has always been a bit weird because he's not like a super charismatic guy uh, in the first way. And uh, I I don't know. It always just strikes me as slightly odd that if if you need to have a leader, why him? Uh, um, you know, it's, uh, it seems like surely for a particular kind of politics, which is uh, entirely legitimate thing if you have a certain kind of left-wing perspective and sincerely think that that's the best way forward for the country um like surely you can do better than this guy with all of the attendant baggage it's not all politicians at number seven millwall fans boo players taking the knee at their game against derby i know i'm probably the only football head here today on the panel but uh, this is kind of uh, roughly what we expect from millwall um i uh, hear did you did this cross yeah. your did this cross your sight line what yeah I mean, Andrew, you may be the only football head, but I'm the racism head, and so <laughs> racism desk. <laughs> yeah, and yes, it's uh, very interesting to see the sort of you. You with racism, you've often got to Occam's razor it, 
Uh, right. Uh, so a lot of people were saying that this is some sort of stand against uh, left wing Marxist political organizations and everything. And you're like, is it that <laughs> elaborate? Is it that elaborate Rube Goldberg machine you've constructed, or is it the simplest thing you could possibly think of? Hmm. Maybe, and I tend to go with the latter. Oh, here's your racism desk there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Yasmin, uh, taking the knee was hugely contested in the US, but here, um, this weekend, the, the Premier League players voted to support it in, 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 very, very enthusiastically. It has become very much part of the, of, of the new football season. The way that entertainment and pop culture has become the most powerful arena for the expression of this particular theme, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, what does that say about the surrounding world of politics that isn't involved in, in pop culture and entertainment, that, that it has to take place there? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, for me, it kind of almost in a way, I, I think I was listening to an interview that um, Harry Kane was doing on this. And he kind of made the point that, um, that, you know, obviously, in football, in, in pop culture, more broadly, th- these are just massive platforms that aren't just in national. I mean, they're international, they reach millions of people around the world. So um, I, I think it's kind of, I, I, even though I'm not into sports, when I do watch a game, I it's here, I've found it incredibly moving to see, you know, the Black Lives Matter banners in stadiums and that just be kind of a normal accepted thing. And, you know, this isn't directly related, but I mean, even looking at, you know, what Marcus Rashford has just accomplished with the free school meals thing. I mean, I think it really just shows that there is a lot of space within these platforms to make change where politics can't or won't. Um, So, yeah, I think it's kind of immensely important um, and has been really quite impressive. And if you look at death, start to go up again. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. We're lower than the world. Please. Uh, Mr. President, after three and a half years, do you regret at all all the lying you've done to the American people? I don't regret what I did. Reasonable people may well disagree. What I did was actually reasonable in these circumstances. Now into the final straight of our worst moments of 2020 at number six, Donald Trump's tiny desk, where having been defeated in the presidential election, he makes a speech from a little tiny table, which seems to have been taken from the lobby of a Marriott or something. I hear, what the hell is this about? I mean, you know, he he really did look like a toddler squeezed onto a Fisher Price table. And there were a lot of jokes about, well, one day he could be at the big boys table. Well, this has a, a, a been a recurring feature throughout the year of things that are so sort of visually absurd or what have you occurring to the extent that you just assume. Like when I first saw that, I was like, oh, someone has photoshopped Donald Trump behind a little desk and everything. So maybe it's a clever tactic to sort of get ahead. When, when the news itself is so unbelievable, then I guess saying fake news will make more sense to people. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe it's, it's all prepping us for deep fake technology and stuff like that, because you can scarcely believe your eyes even in reality maybe i I wonder what the thing behind it was maybe they'll think trump's getting bigger maybe the desk (laughs) is the same size but he's going to be like trumpzilla he's going to be like towering over the white house yes i mean you must have been impressed your your commander-in-chief behind this uh kind of like dinky thing that looked like it had just been you know been grabbed out of the 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 lobby at the at the, the local best western 
Yeah, it weirdly, I guess because around the time, I think that press conference happened the day after Thanksgiving. It reminded me of like being the adult who has to sit at the kids' table at family gatherings. <laughs> so, like, my older, the rest. And I thought like clearly that that's just what's happening here. Like they've just put it. I mean, to be honest, it was it was kind of hilarious. I didn't mind the bit of levity. I, I, I loved it personally. But. <laughs> I, I agree, actually. It was really nice to have one ridiculous wild thing that just had no content at all it wasn't that you know it wasn't connected to kind of lies or racism or threats or belligerence it was just weird and he's done so much worse yeah exactly it's like he's done so much worse like this is incredibly inoffensive on the scale of things absolutely Uh, my friend uh, my friend the comedian jacob hawley once said about trump that occasionally you have to try to enjoy him uh, and this feels like because he's such a like as he's he's just a profoundly weird human being to the extent like that no one has ever really matched that I can think of certainly living at the moment and so yeah it's such a like horrible little nasty fascist for all of the time that sometimes it's quite nice to just be like <laughs> he is at a little desk <laughs> yeah I th- yeah well I, I sort of wish we'd had more of that just to kind of like make everything else more tolerable <laughs> at number five boris johnson urges his mps to form a square around the pritster after an inquiry finds that Priti Patel broke ministerial code on bullying and it wasn't patel who resigned but standards advisor alex allen so Arthur, now that a square has been formed around the Pritster, is that it for parliamentary standards? It's just like break the code and you get away with it, depending on what your connections are. Well, I suppose, you know, uh, Boris is somebody who's, who's uh, you know, he likes to break codes. He sees um, the rules are there for other people. Uh, and, and let's not forget that, you know, he's, he's lied outrageously to Parliament repeatedly. And that, of course, is breaking the code. But no one has ever sort of held him up for that. So in a way, this thing of sort of ignoring the ministerial code it just felt like nothing that really mattered. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's not significant. I mean, presumably having, having happened once, this will, this will now be encouraged next year. We're going to see a whole load more of this. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, impunity is part of the culture of Boris Johnson's uh, government. So it's obviously it, it's been the way he's lived his life. But I think if you actually look at sort of Dominic Cummings, you know, although Cummings has gone, the culture that he brought in, which is this sort of populist nationalism, one of the points with it is that no one actually cares if you lie. You know, you just you just keep lying and move on because your supporters believe the lies. So I think this this idea of a culture of impunity is is sort of hardwired into their methodology and and the realization that no, we're not going to say sorry, no, we won't face consequences. No, there won't be independent inquiries. That's that's a core element of the way these people work. So, yeah, I, it definitely we'll, we'll see more of it. At number four, Donald Trump's tear gas photo opportunity. On June the 1st, the Trump administration orders law enforcement to use tear gas and riot control measures to clear away peaceful protesters near the White House so that Donald Trump can pose outside St. John's Church, which he doesn't attend, holding a Bible, which he doesn't read, upside down. Yasmin, this was pretty horrifying and shameful and embarrassing nobody died but does it kind of fit into the kind of chicago dnc kent state moments of of uh just a indefensible street brutality mm, yeah it's it's actually funny that you ask because now that i think about it when i i 
did a piece um, shortly after that happened, and I was interviewing foreign correspondents who are based in D.C., and one of the ones I spoke to who had previously covered the unrest leading up to the Arab Spring kind of told me repeatedly throughout the interview that the scene just really reminded her of Egypt, like just that, which which was such a striking thing to say because, you know, the the folks I spoke to were obviously seasoned foreign correspondents. Many of them had reported in parts of the world where perhaps you would expect that kind of reaction, particularly in, in very unstable settings. Um, but the fact that they were talking about, you know, Washington, D.C., a city I used to live in, and like some of those scenes that I saw on the streets were just unrecognizable, um, was just pretty chilling. It was um, the, the fact that, I mean, yeah, I certainly, I think you, you could kind of make those comparisons, but the fact that she went so far to be like, this reminds me of sort of, you know, experiencing the tear gas, the protesters being pushed out of the way, that that reminded her of her experiment, experiences um, in, in the Arab Spring. I thought it was really surreal and bizarre. A lot of the detail that emerged subsequently was extremely disturbing as well. Trump talking about dominating the streets, Defence Secretary Mark Esper talking about it as a battle space, and subsequently reports came out that that live ammunition had been ordered and troops were on their way and were ordered back by by military commanders, not by Mm -hmm. politicians. And also that a a Red Cross helicopter was used to chase off uh, protesters with what's known as prop wash. The Red Cross Committee subsequently complained about this. Uh, Were there any consequences for this episode? For the administration, I, I don't think so, not that I'm aware of. Um, but, but I think certainly for the, for the U.S., I mean, uh, as a place where freedom of speech is meant to be sacrosanct, where press freedom is meant to be championed, um, I, I mean, I, I think this really undermined that perception, and not just for Americans, but, but for people around the world to sort of look to the U.S. as a, as a country where that sort of those sort of things just don't happen. The tension is mounting. We're entering the top three. And at number three in the worst moments of 2020, it's Boris Johnson and David Frost's outfits when they met Ursula von der Leyen and Michelle Barnier for the talks uh, at, at the start of December. This was, I hear, this is like a tableau from the Museum of Natural History. It looked like the, the Neanderthals compared to Homo sapiens. You know, Frost and Johnson just looked like they'd been stuffed into these bin bag suits by an angry nanny. What does it? What does it say about us that uh, and our, politi- our politics that? Johnson and Frost clearly wanted to look like shit in front of the Europe, in front of the suspiciously slick Europeans. Yeah, I guess with Johnson, maybe it's just a thing of him being from like a certain kind of class and so rich that like like looking like shit is just the thing that you do because like otherwise it's trying too hard. Uh, like it's like the whole thing of whenever he has a go at Keir Starmer for being a lawyer, you're like, why do you keep going on about this? And you're like, oh, you think having a profession is vulgar? That okay, now it makes sense. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't think people would care what the guys looked like if they were any good at what they were doing. Like you say, I, I wouldn't give a shit if the prime minister walked around in a bin bag as long as healthcare workers didn't have to use bin bags as PPE uh, as they did back in the spring. Uh, and that's that's the problem. I think it's the the substance, not the style. Arthur, you're a diplomat. Is there any way turning up like this to negotiations is accidental? Well, I, I became a bit obsessed with this because I, I used to work in the same building as David Frost. I can't claim I, I know him, but I've walked past him in a corridor many times. And he's definitely not he's not a fat person. But in that picture, he looked like he was incredibly fat and his jacket was never going to close. So I was trying to work out whether he'd sort of, um, you know, all the stress of, of, of negotiating this, um, you know, this world beating deal had caused him to put on a lot of weight. Um, I don't know. These these are the things that have been troubling me in recent weeks. 
We've come to the moment where we find out whether it's Fairy Tale of New York or Always on My Mind as the Christmas number one. So, at number two, he was always on our mind, the ongoing moment that was Dominic Cummings, Bernard Castle. Then he keeps everybody waiting in the Rose Garden for his non-apology. And then, after months of being protected by the Prime Minister, finally, it's death by nut-nuts. Not sacked for breaking the rules that everybody else kept, but for upsetting the Prime Minister's girlfriend. Ah, here, it's just going to be the emblematic branding event of the Johnson government that, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, you, you, you step on Carrie Simmons' toes and that's it, you're over. Well, I think it has been the emblematic branding event of this government, as evidenced by the fact that we're still talking about it now, right? Like, that's the, the thing that stuck in everyone's minds the most about what the government's reaction, I think, to what's been going on and really cements this one rule for them and another for the rest of us. And I think that by January the 1st, the abiding things of the Johnson government will be Barnard Council and uh, Cancelling Christmas. Uh, and, but, but, I mean, maybe we could take a moment to be like, as as appalling as everything was that surrounded it, and I think probably led to avoidable deaths as a sort of second-tier knock-on effect uh, in people's behaviour, what a fantastic afternoon of television that was. Really, really, really incredible. He was just, he, We were waiting for age, we were just looking at a desk, then he comes out and he doesn't even mention it, and he keeps talking about his niece who was bringing him food, and niece is like the objectively funniest relation that he could have been talking about in that sort of moment, uh, and everything. I can't see, time to pop in the car. It's fucking... It, quality telly, appalling stuff. Yeah. But Arthur, among the details that emerged after he'd gone uh, with surprising speed, uh, you know, in in, in the autumn, were the fact that, uh, you know, he'd run this operation where everybody in Number 10 had these kind of laddish nicknames. He's called the political secretary, Ben Gascoigne, Gaza. Lee Kane was Kano. And uh, Rob Oxley, the former Vote Leave press officer who ended up as a Foreign Office special advisor, it was known as Rockstar. I mean, it's like... Guys who are not tough guys pretending to be tough guys. It's it's Dave Brentism at the heart of government. Do you think this is going to, will this persist now that patient zero Cummings has disappeared? Yeah, I think it will, because if you recall, uh, you know, the prime minister, he's quite into this stuff. Do you remember um, uh, some one of his sort of early documents had come out where he refers to David Cameron as a girly swat? Uh, and it's, it's just this sort of, you know, childish mentality where, Everything is 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 japes and and everyone's got a nickname and and women are there to sort of be decorative and and that's just the sort of the attitude that these people have. Cummings was good material. Though. Do you think we'll miss him on podcasts like this? Well, I I think he hasn't gone away in the sense that you know quite a lot of his material was in the in the blogs and in the sort of the anger and the the sort of the the psychoanalyzing of trying to understand what is this person trying to achieve. And I feel that quite a lot of those questions remain to be answered. So I, I guess he, he's still there for us in a special way. Also, like he's definitely going to have his own podcast at some point. That man has the strongest I have a podcast energy of any man in the world and still does not have a podcast. <laughs> so yes, I, I'm sorry, I will be listening to absolutely every episode of Odyssean Project, the audio series. Dom, if you're out there, info at podmasters.co.uk. Rates are very reasonable. And we've got our own studio now. We're happy. We'll work with everybody and anybody. So we've, We've done Bernard Castle. We've done unmasking on the uh, on the balcony of the of the, the White House. We've done a lot. 
So it means it can only be one thing that has made the Christmas number one of the worst moment of 2020. You must have guessed it by now. It's Rudy Giuliani at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Yasmin, this was the image of the year. Do we know how this particular fiasco happened? Gosh, I, I must admit, I'm when it happened, I was kind of just totally perplexed and like was not clear in the details. And even after trying to read up on it, I'm still not clear how they ended up there. I'm going to give it my best shot. So as, as, far, as far as I can tell, there was a bit of miscommunication, um, as you as you can imagine, where basically when it was announced, I, I think Donald Trump had tweeted that they were going to be at the Four Seasons, which obviously prompts everyone to think hotel, um, quickly corrected to actually know Four Seasons total landscaping, um, which, which prompted a, a lot of folks, including myself, to assume, oh, they made a blunder where they clearly made a reservation at the wrong place. Apparently, in, at the Trump administration, I think, has or the campaign, I should say, has said that actually the miscommunication was that they did tell the president where it was, but he heard Four Seasons and assumed it was the hotel. Anyway, they chose what was apparently a kind of friendlier part of town, because I guess there were a lot of Biden protesters <laughs> by the other one. Um, and yeah, they were just uh, effectively ended up, I think it was a press conference to talk about, um, to, to basically provide evidence for the alleged voter fraud, of which there appears to be no evidence. And the fact that it was set between a crematorium and an adult bookstore called Fantasy Island probably tells you all you need to know about the substance of those allegations. Uh, but yeah, that's, that is what I've been able to deduce. Will we ever know the true story behind it? I, I don't know. There is a pleasing circularity that a political project that began on a golden staircase ends up in a car park between a dildo shop and a crematorium. <laughs> it sort of says the vanity of of, of man's hopes is right there. Um, I can't I can't tell you that Fantasy Island Adult Books in in Philadelphia has been booming ever since, and the social media game is very good. Uh, so they seem to have at least spun it to their advantage. I would have thought that you could at least, even if you've made this mistake, you could find a way of marketing it, saying we're not going to hang around in the fancy hotels. We're here with the regular people that run crematoriums and sex shops yet they couldn't do that either i mean they, they i could be a convincing ar- argument to say look we're helping small business i mean i think when i saw they were selling merch like rake america great again i thought yes. it was clever my favorite uh, explanation was it was all siri's fault because somebody said book me the four seasons and siri went i will book you the four seasons and book four seasons uh total landscaping i uh, hear any any thoughts from the comedy community on this one because this surely this was all your christmases at once it's just like take the day off it writes itself what a, what a what a baffling and wonderful event to occur and particularly given the context of like oh what what are you doing planning a fascist auto coup. It's like, how's that working out for you? Do you want to buy a dildo? <laughs> like, this is an extraordinary state of affairs. What, what I really love about moments like this, it's, it's, it's the ability to share them. Uh, so, for example, I rang up my uncle and aunt who live in Boston in the US, and they hadn't heard about this. And I got to, over FaceTime, explain to them what had happened uh, and just watching their faces was like—it was like watching a child taste ice cream for the first time. It was absolutely wonderful uh, situation. It reminded me of when um, a, a while ago I was in the US and saw on Twitter a time when like Ted Cruz had liked a porn tweet uh, on that, and my friends in the UK would all have been asleep, but I was able to text WhatsApp groups being like. Guys, 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 I need you to know as soon as you wake up, and I need to be the one who told you, but Ted Cruz is jacking it right now, and everyone knows, <laughs> and he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> and 
It's just, you know, particularly in a year of distancing and our inability to come together uh, with those we love, particularly at this time of year. Uh, thank you to Four Seasons Total Landscaping for providing that moment of shared joy for families. Arthur, what did you, what did you think? Well, I I think it was the timing of it was particularly special. It was this incredibly cathartic moment because it was the moment when any normal human being could comfortably be sure that Joe Biden had won the election. So that anxiety had gone away, and then the new thing that was happening was this mad, uh, you know, fake legal battle to overturn the result. And of course, it began with Four Seasons Total Landscaping. And then it was the wonderful sequel, the press conference, where Rudy Giuliani's head started to melt. (laughs) Yes, he'd opened the Ark of the Covenant, hadn't he? Exactly. (laughs) Just everything about it. It was just this kind of amazing sort of roller coaster of madness, which I suppose it was a sort of suitably... um, kind of wacky end to 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 the awful years of, of Trump. And a worthy number one in our countdown, the worst moments of 2020. And that's it. That's the end of the worst moments. And that's the end of the last bunker of 2020. We swear, when we started this podcast in February, we had no idea that everybody would end up spending the year in an actual bunker. So we promised not to launch a new podcast called Infinite Plague Camp, or <laughs> You Will Never See Your Family Again, or anything like that. Um, thanks for listening all year. We'll be back in the first week of January. But in the meantime, keep an eye out on our social media for the 12 dailies of Christmas, where we'll be spotlighting some of the best daily podcasts of the year. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our Patreon people for backing us and making The Bunker possible. And thanks to Yasmin Sohan. Thanks for having me. Uh, here's Shah. Cheers. Happy Christmas. And Arthur Snell. Thanks so much. We'll see you in 2021. We hear it's going to be a great year for Britain. <laughs> and before we go, here's a festive shout out to some of our latest Patreon backers. It's hello from me to the mononym Miranda, to Rachel Potts, and to Christian Cable, which Andrew has written in the notes is the best TV channel. Thanks and happy Christmas to Katie Lelliot, Elizabeth Humphreys, and Catherine Robinson. Thanks and best wishes from me to Tom Callahan, Daniel Hunt, and David Barlow. And finally, best wishes for whatever sort of Christmas you're going to have from me too, Audrey Jameson, Steve Walsh, and Chris Thompson. See you on the other side. The Final Bunker of 2020 was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, Badahi Shah, Yasmin Saran, and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Not just the 52% voted for Brexit. Anyway, fuck and fuck. Hope you've enjoyed it tonight. Oh, what a night. We're out of here. Good night. Leave it, Brexit.